Okay. okay. We are rolling, 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 rolling. All right. Okay. Music, music, music. <laughs> Welcome back to Cinema Journal Presents Acamedia. It's been a little while, we know. We've been busy. Kind of missed a month there. Uh, it's, Is it a month? It feels like a like years uh, yes. and maybe a week. Well, that's what happens at conference time season in the spring semester. Three conferences in something like five weeks. Yeah, including one that you hosted, Yes, right? indeed. We had the Craft of Criticism little mini conference here at, at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, SCMS and consoling passions and lots of lots of lots of tired uh, late night writing. Yeah, that's you know I, I love conferences. I love getting away for a weekend and the just kind of intellectual and social fun of a conference. But losing three days out of a week to go to a conference is really rough. pretty brutal. Yeah, we did manage to get a, a road trip to Missouri out of the deal. We did. Yeah, that we saw good. some we saw some sights in Missouri. We did. Yeah. Uh, Columbia, really fantastic town. The yeah. areas outside of Columbia, um, well, you know, a little reserve quiet. judgment, perhaps. You know, we just drove through them, so we saw some billboards. You know, that pretty legendary we, we billboards. We saw some billboards. We saw some billboards. We took photographs of to we show might, in we class. We might be able to share some of those billboards with you on our website. That's a good idea. We should yeah. put some of our highlights of our road trip. A highlight reel. Yeah, some of the cultural sidelights of the trip. Low lights. Right. Um, we did, though, do work at these conferences for Acamedia, not just for our conference papers. And so we got our handy tricorders out and recorded some content. So uh, today's episode, both of our segments are from SCMS. That's just how much heavy lifting the Acamedians are doing. Exactly. So we've got an interview with Julie Wilson. Uh, I'm talking to her about her recent Cinema Journal article. And then Bill Kirkpatrick did yeah, some work for us. Yeah, we get Bill. He, Bill ran a terrific... Uh, Roundtable talking about teaching avant-garde and experimental cinema. All right. So we've got that good stuff to come. Okay. So let's hear from uh, your conversation with Julie Wilson. All right. Julie Wilson is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Arts and Theater at Allegheny College. She received her PhD from the University of Minnesota, and her primary areas of expertise include critical media and cultural studies, celebrity and stardom, feminist media studies, and television studies. In the winter issue of Cinema Journal, Wilson published an article entitled Stardom, Sentimental Education, and the Shaping of Global Citizens. The article focuses on Danny Kay, who became a Goodwill ambassador for UNICEF in 1954, and that set an emotional process that brought media industry stars and the UN into dynamic relationship and birthed a new concept of celebrity diplomacy. So Julie Wilson is joining me in Seattle at the SCMS conference. So welcome back to Acamedia, Julie. Thank you very much. Yeah, we had you for a teaching roundtable last year. So we can actually revisit that topic of teaching at the end of this. But what we're here to talk to you about is your Cinema Journal article entitled Stardom, Sentimental Education, and the Shaping of Global Citizens. And I really love reading this article. I think it's got a, a lot of interesting components to it. And especially the historical context I thought was fascinating. I have only a passing familiarity with some of the Cold War conditions. And I thought that was a really interesting part of your article. And it's also, of course, crucial to your article for understanding why and how Danny Kaye's image was mobilized on behalf of the UN and UNICEF. So I was wondering if you can start us out with that. You described this early period of the Cold War as one with two competing visions of, uh, of world order. So what were those two visions? Um, where did UNICEF's aims fit within that? 
I should start off by saying that when I came to this, it was part of my dissertation research, and I wasn't trained in history. And, I, and to be honest, I, I didn't imagine when I was studying celebrity culture, going back to this context in any in any sort of meaningful way. But I realized, I talk about in the piece at the beginning, I was I was really trying to think through what we're seeing today, celebrity and stars, and what prominent role they play in global governing. And I realized pretty quick in my research that I had to go back um, and kind of trace that history and figure that out. And I think that it was at some point, it just dawned on me that things are really, really complicated. And, and you kind of think of the post-war era as, as kind of easy Cold War moment, the beginnings of that, that's what you learn in high school. And that's kind of this sense that I had. But the more I started reading, I was like, well, it was also this other time about global citizenship and, and internationalism and the UN I mean, I think that's when I first started to get interested in thinking about earlier stars in the UN. It was, the UN was, I think I took it for granted that it was just always there, but no, it was invented in this particular moment. And so I really had to kind of figure out the beginning of UNICEF and think through that. And I drew on the work of Andrew Falk and Christina Klein to do that. And so those two competing visions that I think it's really fascinating to think through are on the one hand, the um, kind of Cold War mentality, this two world vision, right? Where you've got communism versus freedom, capitalism, and you have this containment policies and you've got arms race will come on and the Red Scare, anti-communist propaganda. But at the same time, you also have, especially within culture, um, a very different idea about global world order that was much more about integration and interdependence, international cooperation, global citizenship, and having a sense of, I'm not just a member of the United States, if we're talking about the US context, but I'm not just a citizen of my country, but I'm a citizen of the world, with obligations, moral, economic, social, to people in the underdeveloped world and the developing world. And so in culture, you kind of had this sensibility, this integrationist world order animating a lot of the texts that you saw. I mean, it's part of the context, but they both, they're kind of competing in some ways, but they're also both obviously very much connected to global capitalism and the rise of international markets and, and the early iterations of what we now talk about as neoliberalism. Yeah. So I think it's really helpful to think about those together. The UN is interesting to think about in that context because on the one hand, obviously the UN is part of the one world integrationist vision in the aftermath of the Holocaust and the rise of nuclear bomb. There was a sense of this can never happen again, right? So how are we going to do that? So we've got to create peace and cooperation and people need to know each other and we need to, and there was this idea of world government. So that's where the UN comes in. But within US culture, the UN was thought to be um, very radical and communist and even though a lot of people on the left will say, well, the UN was just a handmaiden of cat, which is true too, right? But I don't think we had a lot of tools for kind of necessarily, especially in maybe in media sites. I didn't, that wasn't part of the story that I had heard. So part of, I think, to understand Danny Kay, I had to kind of think about the UN as being part of this one world vision that was very controversial because it didn't really map onto the two world Cold War political agendas. So. And, and especially from your descriptions, I can see all of that stuff coming out of World War II, right? Because yeah. World War II has, and particularly the idea of like the propaganda of how we have to do this right. for international order, but then coming out of like the two superpowers of World War II, then you right. have that stuff coming up. That idea of propaganda too intrigued me. 
you talked about how the UN and UNICEF didn't want their campaigns to come across as propaganda or even as fundraising, which right. I thought was a really interesting aspect. So you talk about how their appeals were framed as sentimental education. So can you explain what sentimental education means? I, I borrowed that from Christina Klein. She really theorizes that, but it seemed, I mean, this is what's going on. And today, too, with our ideas about global citizenship, it's about this kind of self who sees or understands itself in relationship to a larger world and that it's this kind of universal, universalist ideas about what it means to be a citizenship that are very much rooted in kind of emotion and the transcending of difference through forging these individual but common bonds with individuals in other parts of the world. So you get cultural exchange programs and pen pals. But the whole idea of citizenship became very much about these sentimental bonds based on emotion with others, with distant others. Yeah, and it struck me while reading it, I kept thinking about how perfect this was for Hollywood film. Right, because yeah. Hollywood film in general relies on sentimentality. But I was even thinking of again the wartime films, right. and Casablanca in particular kept coming up about the idea of how the, you know, there's sort of like a stand-in for each of the allies, mm -hmm. and you really get a sense of like the sentimental bond among them. And so it seems like that idea of adopting that sentimental location is perfect for Hollywood, which then in turn brings in stars, right? right? And so that's the next component of your article. And here again, you're doing some really interesting things because you talk about how stars are so often tied to consumerist ideologies and, and sort of figures of consumption. And yet this is a very different kind of mode for starting to be mobilized. So how did that work? And specifically, you can speak to the case of Danny Kaye here, the films he made for UNICEF. How was his stardom then mobilized to create these global appeals for emotional compassion in, in impoverished countries? I think that's one of the things that draws me to studying celebrity is just this idea that star discourse and celebrity, we think about it in terms of promoting consumerism and individualism, and that's so bad because this is like for capitalism. To me, it doesn't make sense if that's because that's how we normally think of stars then what are they doing in something like the humanitarian fields of global governing, right? Those two things don't go together. We, we see them together now, and people still critique them, but it, it's weird to me that it happened in the first place, right? Because stars are so we, – we think of them and locate them in consumer culture. And so I really wanted to think about why this would even happen, and I think you have to go back to not only just the kind of one-world, two-world scenario, but the kind of specific challenges that the UN had at that time, right? You've got the right in the U.S. thinking the UN is infiltrated by communists and it's an evil organization and all these things, you know, you have to walk very carefully, especially when you're the U.S. and Western countries have so much power within the organization, the money's coming from there. But the people that work within the U.N., whether they're economists, um, and the U.N. also represents lots of other countries with lots of different interests, how are you going to kind of negotiate all of that? But I think Danny Kaye did was show how stars can almost leap over the national governments, like the U.S. nervous about the U.N., right? The government maybe, or and for various reasons, but stars can kind of create these bonds with audiences and through the kind of individualizing aspects of stardom, how we identify with stars as individuals, it's not threatening. It's just Danny Kay, and like we're identifying, we like him, and it makes us feel good, and it makes us feel like good global citizens. So I think that was really interesting how, because of what's going on at the UN, because of that complicated context, you could have the individualizing functions of stardom really working in a very powerful political way, mm -hmm. right? And I don't want to suggest that it was some trick or anything like that, but I just think I was interested in how that kind of emerged and how that that came to make sense mm -hmm. in this particular moment. 
And at a time where I still think it doesn't necessarily make sense to have Angelina Jolie on the Council of Foreign Affairs, right? right. So, especially someone like Danny Kaye, who in some ways wasn't the easiest fit. The Hans Christian Andersen stuff works, and his um, clowning and the comedy, but he was also kind of a controversial figure in, in other ways as well. So, yeah, that aspect you you bring up, you know, he in terms of communism, the blacklist, and all that, that he had some some issues there. Actually, when I was reading it, I remembered you brought back a childhood memory that I had an album a Danny Kaye album when I was a kid and he was singing you know whatever your family favorites or something and I'd completely forgotten about that and I remember that like I grew up listening to Danny Kaye and so there's because you can think of other figures like you mentioned Jane Fonda right Mm -hmm. as being a very different kind of figure of of stardom and um, global issues but Danny Kaye's persona is really interesting in that regard and then getting back to this idea like Kaye's own reasons for getting involved in that campaign so could you say more about that about Kaye's image his own motivation for getting involved with this? I mean, what his biographer suggested was that he and his wife were listed in a, in a long list of communist sympathizers. It didn't end up going much beyond that, but he, I think that he wanted to be involved in politics. And so I, it makes sense that this would be a kind of safer but meaningful avenue. And part of the context, too, is that stars were really, really taken with the idea of one world government and that kind of one world vision and a lot of stars had been doing promotional work trying to promote Wendell Wilkie's work and kind of advocating for those kind of global policies and so it seemed like it was a path to take. Which also seems like the at least as we understand a lot of the model for these stars today like Angelina Jolie and so and you argue in the article that what Danny Kaye started became a model for mm. future celebrity diplomacy and I think you've you've done work on Angelina Jolie mm-hmm. um, and so how do you find her and others instructive in either kind of perpetuating what was started then or complicating it? On the one hand there was a report done, I think it was in 2006, by the UN, because there was a lot of anxiety about the proliferation of celebrity ambassadors and sentimental educators. They commissioned this whole task force to study who's effective and who's not, and what organizations are using them, are they costing the UN money? But it was something like, I think it was 400 celebrities working in the UN system at the time. And so you would think that like Angelina Jolie is kind of, is complicated, right? She's very controversial. There's Team Jolie, Team Anison. She's Billy Bob Thornton and blood vile. You know, she's not this easy person to take up within that system. And so that kind of interested me, too, because what the report found was that her organization, the United Nations High Commissioner on Refugees, actually was using her most effectively, and they had the best celebrity, the ambassador program, and she's really was kind of held up as a model of how to do this right. And I think part of it is that she has this initiative. She's not really interested in it so much as she's not about a brand for her in the same way that it might be for other young stars that want to associate with the UN. She went through a lot of work. She had to prove her chops. She had to learn all the stuff and be tested. I still think it's still a little weird, <laughs> even if she's willing to do all that, to, to kind of bring Angelina Jolie and all that she means into that. And especially at the time where it started taking off, right? Because this was before the big global family and, and Brad Pitt and that had all simmered down. But I think that it has to do with the crucial role that new media technologies play in global governing now, because it's not just the UN, it's all these NGOs and they all have to brand themselves and they all have to, and they have to raise money. I mean, her organization, they have to raise a ton of money. And one of the ways that they do it is largely through online interactive campaigns. And 
I think even though Jolie can be kind of controversial in some ways, they can still link to People Magazine and use her image to build the virtual real estate, if you will, of the UN and kind of use celebrities differently than with Danny Kay. We don't see prime time network specials so much about Angelina Jolie, um, like that was actually fairly common back then. But I think we do see her kind of, if you're in those networks, you see stars and celebrities, you'll get messages from her in your email and like, um, and all those kinds of things. But I do think there's something really similar going on. I mean, I think that they are, it's still premised on this idea that through stars and the individualizing function of star discourse, it it becomes a medium of global citizenship. And one other component that came out, and this is actually via your uh, Postscripts and Afterthoughts essay, which is posted on the um, SMS website. We'll put a link on our our website to that. But you said an additional area uh, that's come up in this as you thought more about it is the idea of the gendering of this mode of global citizenship. So you write in the post, I'll quote from it, the modalities of citizenship encouraged by globetrotting do-gooding stars are highly feminized. They involve care and consumption in the private sphere and therefore stand in sharp contrast to the realm of real politics. And so what do you think are, and this is as you, you noted in that piece, kind of an underexplored area, but what do you think are some of the consequences for this circumstance, whether for stars themselves and what room which stars have to do what, mm-hmm. or for interest in global issues. I felt like when I was working on my dissertation that I wanted to talk about the kind of gender politics of global citizenship and how, because global citizenship and popular culture has been so tied to consumer culture in some ways through stars and through these kind of private acts of I'm going to trick or treat for UNICEF or I'm going to buy the water as their new campaign or, you know, or like these kind of branding campaigns. They're not doing anything revolutionary. It's all very safe. But It's easy to say that, right? It's easy to say, oh, that's not real politics. But if you think back to Danny Kaye, like there's something pretty profound going on there. Like stars provided the kind of cultural base for the UN within the United States. And I guess what what I'm wondering now is the fact that those modes of citizenship are so gendered and denigrated by people that want to think about politics proper in some way. I'm wondering if we're not thinking through and as clearly and as sharply as we could, and we're just dismissing certain things or devaluing them or not taking them seriously from a political perspective because they're associated with celebrity and because they're associated with these kind of what we think of as feminized forms of citizenship or like consumer culture. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really problematic. It shuts down questions. It shuts down ways of thinking. And I, I think star studies is wonderful and rich. Like there's so much good work going on, but it's taken a really long time to start thinking outside of stars as like these products of consumer culture. Or when we do think about political stars, it's all about, oh, look how consumer mm. culture is taking over politics, right? And I think that's a really simplistic way to think about it. You know, I definitely agree. I think there's so much more to be covered within star studies. And actually, we're, as I said, we're sitting here at SEMS. There was sort of a, a news bomb dropped on academia here at the conference uh, where one of the stars within star studies, Anne Helen Peterson, has uh, decided to leave academia and go to BuzzFeed. So first of all, I really look forward to reading BuzzFeed and her pieces on star studies, but I also think it's a loss within academia for star studies because this is part of the realm of her work is is addressing fandom and gender and, and these kinds of aspects within star studies. So Yeah, and I don't think it's disconnected from some of the things that I'm trying to think through in my, in my own work, right? Celebrity and stardom are highly gendered, um, social and cultural phenomenon, and I have a lot of friends that work on celebrity and stars in the UK and in Australia and New Zealand and in the UK. US as someone who who does celebrity like there are no jobs in star studies and celebrity studies and it is 
absolutely mind-blowing to me that someone like Anne Helen Peterson, who is incredibly prolific as a scholar, publishing in peer-reviewed journals, as well as a public intellectual. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of this has to do with the way that we value and think about and the limitations of how we think about and value celebrity. And it's really, I mean, I think with this piece... And, and thinking with Angelina Jolie, my dissertation, I think that what I really want to do is just bring out the complexity of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying, oh, I don't want to celebrate it or say it's a good thing. But I really wanted to bring out the contradictions. Well, that's really fascinating work. The last thing I wanted to hit on is some of your other work. And in particular, we have a little self-interest here because Cinema <laughs> Journal co-sponsors some of this work. But the website teachingmedia.org, you've been involved with that. And so I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about that and, and the kind of things we've got going on there at teachingmedia.org because I think people need to to know about the site, and if they don't already, I'm hoping we could introduce them to, to more about it. Yes, a colleague of mine from graduate school, Tony Nadler, and I were just like one summer talking about how we wish that there was this place for media scholars who really care about teaching and love talking about teaching and pedagogy to share resources. Because so much of our time and labor is about finding out the best way to teach things to students, figuring out what clips to show, what readings work best. And so we just, we neither one of us knew how to build a website or anything, and we just started this site. And to be honest, it was it took a long time for it to get going. Like the hardest thing was I think everyone was super enthusiastic and they wanted the site with all these resources, but they didn't want to contribute or they didn't want to figure out how to use WordPress and and take the time to kind of format their own contributions in a way that would be useful to other people. And so we kind of, but we kept it going and we kept trying to talk to people about it and we got a lot of good feedback and we have a lot, we got a lot of members and a lot of users, but I think the site's really taken off in the last year or two because we started doing, we actually have two publications, two different teaching publications. Um, One is run by the editorial board of graduate students at the University of Minnesota where, where we, Tony and I, did our graduate work. And they'll put a call out for, say, how do you teach surveillance? and digital culture, for example. And then people will submit an assignment that they use and um, reflections on that and a set of materials. And so we've got that going. And then more recently, we started working with Cinema Journal to publish the Cinema Journal teaching dossier, which we have different editors, basically the teaching committee, right? It, yeah, that's where it, it, it started. started. Yeah, the teaching committee from SCMS thought that they wanted to, to do something like this. And then we've done an issue on teaching with social media and and there was the, what was the second one? We've done a lot. Well, there's the video essay one. The was video the essay was the one? second. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then paratext and pedagogy and a world cinema. But each dossier is organized around a particular theme that editors have selected and they put calls out. And I've heard a lot from people that are just really excited about it and just say, I read them all the time. You know, I, I think that the, we really want the site to also be not these formal venues, but a mix of that with the kind of informal contributions and a place where people can can share and come together and we can kind of teach together, right? Yeah. And also, yeah, you notice note the um, importance of communication and even informally, there's also a Facebook group tied to teaching media that I think has been really productive of, of people throwing out, I'm doing this in class, any suggestions? And so pooling resources. I think Aaron Koppel-Smith was the one who started that mm-hmm. Facebook and then tied it to teaching media, and that's been really productive as well. 
Yeah. Well, this has been a really great conversation. I look forward to more of your work on this and uh, teachingmedia.org. So thank you for joining Acamedia. Thank you for having me. Everything is tickety-boo, tickety-boo, tickety-boo. Everything is tickety-boo. One such a dreamy diddly-oodly-hoo could be a snickety-poo, snickety-poo, snickety-poo. With the sky so blinkety-blue, it causes one to say, bless mankind. Well, that was a very interesting conversation. Thanks for doing that interview, Chris. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, one of the things that um, I think is maybe worth following up on, maybe maybe down the road, I was thinking about those comments about um, Annie Peterson moving out of academia and mm -hmm. the uh, the vicissitudes of the academic job market, and it made me think about all these people who have who have essentially taken different paths, both in and out of academia, moving yeah. into the industry, coming into academia after uh, different kinds of work. Mm -hmm. And I think it might be worth sort of probing that question a little bit more because there are some interesting, there's some really interesting things that some people are doing that they couldn't do without a foundation in, um, in media studies, right. but which take them in different kinds of directions. Yeah. Well, I definitely think that's something we could do a, a piece on. We're actually talking about doing a piece later on, or a, a whole episode later on down the line about looking into the state of media studies. And I think that would be something really intriguing to investigate about people starting academia, leaving for other places, or starting other places coming to academia yeah. and investigating that. Yeah. So um, if any of you out there are interested in sharing your thoughts about that, send us a note. We might be able to include some of your stories or insights about that topic. Yep. And you can always reach us at info at aca-media.org. That's our email address. All right, so what have we got up next? Uh, we've got Bill Kirkpatrick here. He sat down at SCMS with a few of the experimental film and media SIG members to talk about teaching in that area. And most of us don't teach experimental film, but many of us teach intro classes where we could have, say, a week on avant-garde. And we always struggle, I think, to figure out how to teach this area and make it seem like it's not suddenly coming out of nowhere. Yeah. So we've got some really great information in this conversation about how to do exactly that, how to integrate experimental film uh, teaching into a broader course. So I'm here with a panel of experts on experimental film and media at SEMS in Seattle, and we wanted to talk with them about teaching experimental film and media and some of the challenges and rewards of pedagogy in this field. So I will just let them introduce themselves and we'll go around the table. Uh, my name is Dustin Zemmel. I'm a PhD student at Louisiana State University. I have a background not just in studying uh, experimental media, but also making and facilitating it. Hi, my name is Michael Zarid. I uh, teach at York University in Toronto and uh, teach mainly North American or American or Canadian uh, experimental film and media. My name is Jonathan Wally. I teach in the Department of Cinema at Denison University. My specific interests are in the relationship between avant-garde film and the other arts in the avant-garde and in expanded cinema, non-traditional cinematic forms like installation, projection, performance, and so on. I'm Erica Balsam. I teach in the film studies program at King's College London, and my particular interest is in gallery-based practices and also working on a book about distribution infrastructures. Okay, well, thank you, and welcome to Acamedia. I wanted to start by just reflecting on when I remember when I was an undergrad at NYU, watching uh, Wavelength and sitting there and not knowing what I was even looking at and then going through a whole range of emotions at first, 
boredom and then frustration and then anger and, and then realizing, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be going through all these emotions. And it was a wake-up call for me about what film could actually accomplish. It doesn't have to be this nice little narrative experience. So how do you seek to wake up your students to the power of experimental film and some of the sense of wonder that you obviously feel since you're devoting your life to it? Well, there are many answers to give to this, but mine is maybe a curricular one, which is to say, get them early. I think sometimes experimental film gets shut off into upper year specialized classes that students, they don't know what it is, so they'll never sign up for that. Um, whereas I think one way to do it is to get them in the first year in a broad intro context where experimental film is not going to be the only new kind of cinema that they're watching. Yeah, I mean, I actually the experience you describe is one that I think students should have. Um, I when I used to do my kind of intro film one hundred, you know, week or two on on experimental film, I was sort of protective of experimental film, and so I would have a whole day of lecture with no movies, where I had to lay the groundwork: what does experimental mean? What does avant-garde mean? The whole history of avant-garde art. It's like I wouldn't let them out of the gate until I felt like they were ready, until uh, they were like worthy of seeing these films. And I've completely changed that around. Now I just, with with very little fanfare and almost no information, uh, will just show films. And what's nice is that often you can show an entire experimental film in, in class because they're short. Uh, frequently. And um, I want them to have that kind of experience um, and to create a context, not where my job is to, is to get them ready beforehand, but to help them work through the experience of seeing something that's un, unfamiliar to them. And I would agree with Erica that it is, it is partly curricular. I mean, I've, I've seen so many basic film classes, you know, history 101, aesthetics 101 that really don't bring in avant-garde cinema. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's something that I would, I would like to see in, in more curriculum, which is simply integrating experimental films into the general curriculum as though it wasn't something weird or advanced. Uh, yeah, for film theory classes rarely use experimental film, and yet there are any number of really, really fascinating intersections between the classics of film theory that we all teach and really great experimental films. Right. In fact, especially in theory classes, avant-garde film is often probably more relevant to a lot of the theoretical discussions than other kinds of film. Um, so I often start with Mothlight uh, by Stan Brakhage, 1964. And that's usually what I tell, uh, what I tell them, other than the, the title of the film, the year it was made, and the name of the maker, I don't give them anything to go on. Um, I just ask them to watch it. I tell them that it's not a clip. We're going to watch the entire thing. Mothlight um, was made uh, by uh, Brackage, uh, working alone, not in any kind of industrial or, or you know, uh, context. Um, was made by attaching moth wings and blades of grass and bits of seeds and other pieces of organic debris and attaching them directly to a strip of clear 16 millimeter film. Um, this is not something that could run through the projector, so eventually it was printed. But essentially, it was a, a film made without a camera, um, and so it doesn't have cinematography in the traditional sense. Uh, it also doesn't have shots in any traditional sense because the material is just laid down across the uh, the strip um, in ways that that create no kind of frames. The frames are created by the camera, um, and. 
it creates this kind of pulsating, flickering uh, series of sometimes recognizable, sometimes not recognizable images that are extreme magnifications um, of, of these bits of, of debris. And it's silent as well, so there's no, there's, no, um, there's no soundtrack. And it's about three minutes long, is that right? Um, and so it's, it's, it's very good to start with because um, it, it really goes against, uh, purposely goes against a lot of the accepted categories and, and, and sort of processes of filmmaking that we've already spent a lot of time talking about. So students almost have to return to kind of a zero point and say, okay, what, what can we do with this film given what we already know? I wanted to come back to what Bill had described as his experience of wavelength in the classroom and is this a real film after all? And then realizing that uh, that's part of the experience that you're going through. And I think you're already in a way having the experience you're supposed to. Not all students, of course, are going to get that in the course of the 45-minute screening. So what I like to do in my teaching when I'm doing, dealing with experimental films, especially difficult and longer films like that, is I think it's really important to allow students to have that resistance. In other words, to get them to not feel like they have to sit there and somehow appreciate this great film that their prof is showing them, but actually be able to say, I was bored, I hated this, this made me feel like this. And then you start to have a discussion. So often resistance to experimental films can be thematized in the classroom and it gets you places. And that actually opens students up to the rest of cinema. They're also allowed to be a little bit bored by Tarkovsky, uh, and that might be a good good thing. But it also might allow them to uh, understand why a durational strategy is working in all kinds of cinema, with documentary and, and feature films as well. So for me, this is the pedagogical value of experimental film is that it actually opens up all of cinema. Uh, a last point I would make is that uh, students have changed over the years. I've been teaching experimental film now for 25 years, and. Resistance is different. Uh, the fact that there's so much digital distribution and the MTV generation uh, and those kinds of uh, changes, people are used to uh, a lot of the formal characteristics that we used to associate with more uh, challenging avant-garde work. Uh, so in that way, you also need to calibrate how you're thinking about what's experimental because uh, so much of that gets incorporated into other forms of cinema. So I find students are often really receptive to films. They like wavelength now which means I have to thematize resistance in different ways. <laughs> yeah, these are all great points. As far as integrating experimental media into the more uh, traditional classroom environment, we're trying to accomplish the same things as far as getting students to think critically about the media they're engaged with. They're very familiar with more conventional forms, and so sometimes that is makes a difficult hurdle. Experimental media is directly addressing a lot of the theoretical issues and it's making no qualms about it. It's right there um, on the surface. Like uh, structuralist films from like the 60s, I think they do like an excellent job of showing, you know, ideas related to apparatus theory, for instance, or, you know, just- Can you give an example of that? Yeah, I mean, like, the film that's dust and sprocket holes, is it George, like, uh, George, Landau. George Landau, right? It's showing the apparatus itself to us. It's showing all of uh, the, the debris and the excesses of image that are naturally inherent to the celluloid film itself. And through its short duration, you're confronted with the idea of sitting in front of the screen and simultaneously the materiality of what you don't pay attention to and kind of the non-materiality of what you think you're engaging with uh, in, in cinema. 
Yeah. We went and showed that in a in this film society screening under the moniker Dirty Movies. <laughs> I just wanted to make one other uh, point about the other thing that I think experimental film does, which is often different from typical movies, is that it allows or invites students to have an experience in which they're not doing anything with the film. And that's often the greatest challenge for students is to just watch something and be attentive to something that is foreign. And it's not instrumental. You can't you don't need to analyze it. There's no narrative to follow. There's no not even necessarily any meaning to articulate about it. It's just an experience. People like David James would say that is ultimately the real politics of a, of a filmmaker like Stan Brakhage, is that he requires a kind of non-instrumental approach to the world, and that is quite precious in a culture that instrumentalizes everything. One of the, one of the, the words that just came up a few minutes ago was encounter, and I, I, I like that. That's actually kind of what I think of when I introduce students who I know have little or no background in the avant-garde in general, in, in particularly film. I like that idea of the encounter. And what, what Mike said a few minutes ago is that our job is not to somehow sell this cinema to, to resistant students. Because, because if, if the idea from the get-go is this is great cinema and you need to be getting to a place as a cinema student where you appreciate it and like it, then it it's, seems like pointless from the beginning. Um, and so I like the idea of the encounter and allowing them to have the kinds of, of resistance that they do. I had a conversation with a student last year. I was teaching a, a class that combined both studies and production in experimental cinema. And she said something that, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but it was this idea that on the one hand, it was kind of wrong to think of these films as weird because that was just a measure of their difference from mainstream cinema, the cinema with which we're all most familiar. But on the other hand, they are supposed to be weird. They are supposed to be different. I think they are supposed to cause problems for viewers, sometimes quite serious problems like perceptual problems and, and anger and taking offense morally at certain kinds of content. I think that they are, they're supposed to do that. So one of the things that I found I don't have a solution to this, but, but just being aware of it can, can, I think, be helpful in teaching avant-garde cinema, is negotiating between familiarizing an unfamiliar cinema, but also allowing it to remain unfamiliar, giving permission to students to have the kinds of negative responses and resistant responses that they're naturally going to have. And as long as they reflect on those responses critically. So if they say that they're bored or that they say that they're annoyed by it, and what I always love is that they say that they're bored by Mothlight, uh, which is three minutes long, <laughs> you know? And I say, like, the commercials that you watch, you know, during your shows, the commercial breaks are longer than that and you don't seem to be bored. So, uh, but that, that you're allowed to be bored. You don't have to suck up to the prof or to the tradition and say, you know, oh, yes, it's so different. You, know, you don't have to talk like that. You're allowed to be bored as long as you can critically reflect on, on what that means and what that experience was. So it's walking a line, I think, between getting them to appreciate this other kind of cinema, but also allowing it to remain unfamiliar and remain radical and, and remain even unliked. This gets to the idea of the difference between integrating experimental film into film history or film theory or introductory courses versus you know, having a contained experimental film course. 
experimental film is not the singular, easily definable genre, but that even amongst the field of uh, experimental film, you have a wide range of, of approaches and, and politics. You know, the, I think the ideal is, um, not, like you said, uh, Jonathan, not to, not to sell experimental film, but we want the students to have a similar experience to what you have, which is kind of coming to these realizations on their own. And if it's contextualized within a film, experimental film course, not saying that there's not the possibility for that, but maybe usually students are already coming in having had that experience before, so there's a different approach that needs to be had. Um, in the UK, the, the label experimental film doesn't really get used so often. People tend to speak instead about artist moving image or something like that. And on the one hand, that's just kind of difference of name. On the other hand, the implications are very, very different. And so one of the things about the usefulness of experimental film as a category or not is thinking about exactly what kind of canon it would entail or imply. And so, for example, I think um, the history of video art would not be a part of a class on experimental film, whereas it would be an important part of something like artist moving image. Certainly, I mean, I took a really, really excellent, I think Mike and I both took the same really excellent introduction to experimental film um, at the University of Toronto. And I remember very well that it was a very particular history of movie theater-based practices without any engagement with um, the relationship between cinema and the other arts or in a gallery-based context. That is maybe something that um, is a function of the time when we took it and is changing now, I think. But I also think that there's a kind of um, maybe disciplinary question involved in terms of thinking about what experimental film implies as a category that these other labels wouldn't. I just wanted to add uh, one other note, and that is uh, one of the things that I think has changed now in the teaching of experimental film is that there's a lot more research and scholarship on the historical contextualization of what was happening. And that's another way in for students. You can watch the, the text of the film, but knowing something about the history, uh, the scenes that surrounded the artists who were making this work, uh, often students can find a way into something and in a way understand something or even kind of appreciate it historically in a way that um, just being confronted with the image, that does different work in the classroom. So I just wanted to say I think the kind of historical work that someone like Erica is doing, for example, I'm looking at distribution networks and the ways in which there's a whole uh, ecology and economy around experimental film. That's really important research to get into the classroom because it provides a, a kind of connection for students there. I'm, this is just kind of a sweeping generalization, but I think often that um, avant-garde films are used aesthetically or maybe theoretically, but in terms of the institutional history, in terms of the history of what else was going on in the other arts at the time, in terms even of the sort of institutional relationship between avant-garde filmmaking and other modes like you know, studio-based mainstream filmmaking and so forth, that those I think get much less attention. Sometimes it's just a matter of time, but I, I also think sometimes it's this idea that what we have are obviously very formally radical films, and so that's 
the kind of work that they can do in the classroom most effectively is to, is to sort of confront us with these aesthetic or formal issues. But I completely agree that, that filling in this historical context and background is critical. And one thing I, I do find is when I show certain films is that I, I teach at a liberal arts college and I, I often show these classes, uh, show these films in classes that are made up of students from, from all over, majoring in everything. And I often find that a student from, say, art history or studio art or a student from, from one of the other arts or a student from political science or a student even from, from um, econ, that they start bringing their own ways of, of thinking about these films or they formulate questions about the films that reflect their particular interests. And that can be a very good way of bringing in that kind of context. Someone asked a particular question about, say, how was that made? Or, oh, one thing I often get is at least one or two students will say that Mothlight reminded them of abstract painting. Um, and so you can sort of put a pin in those as the discussion develops and then come back to them, and that's a very nice way of, of filling in. But that context, I, I agree, is critical. It can't simply stop at the, you know, at the, uh, at the aesthetic. So you mentioned the uh, intersection of theory and experimental film. So does anyone have an example of how you might use experimental film to help students understand theory? Uh, I find if I'm teaching psychoanalysis, it's of course a long tradition of uh, that as a theoretical tradition within cinema media studies, there are certain canonical texts like Vertigo or Marnie that you can certainly go to. But a really compact example would be to compare something like Enchantalou, a surrealist film that is explicitly using um, dream operations in its production process, at least as stated by the makers. But then contrast that with a film like Sue Friedrich's Gently Down the Stream, where she is also in a way processing her dream journals. But it's a good example also of historicizing these works. Um, Chandelou, for all of its pleasures and anarchic energy, is also clearly the uh, work of two young lads. Uh, and it has the kind of sterile sexuality of, uh, of two, boy, two art students playing around in Paris. Generally down the stream, meanwhile, is an enormously uh, eloquent articulation of lesbian subjectivity uh, in relationship to the cultural pressures felt in the United States at the time and her status as someone in between uh, American with a, uh, American culture but also with a German heritage. There's all sorts of ways in which you can take something that's theoretical like psychoanalysis and provide a historical dimension for it by using short films in the classroom, one something 25 minutes and the other is I think 11 minutes, there's also, there are also films you can show twice. Uh, and so that work of analysis really can work, uh, that can work in a classroom, I think, really effectively. I'm very interested in documentary studies and the convergences between experimental film and uh, documentary studies and what, how they are in conversation with each other. And uh, what's interesting to me um, in pairing these two in the classroom environment is that the historical trajectories of both these different forms are very interesting because in the early years, in uh, the early 20th century, there's a, a convergence there where we think of um, a lot of early experimental films like um, the, the city's uh, films of either like Vertov or uh, what's the Berlin one? Berlin City of Symphony. Berlin, Berlin City, uh, yeah, City of Symphony. And also like Manhattan by uh, Paul Strand. Those are kind of linked into uh, Bill Nichols' idea of the poetic documentary mode, uh, which emerged very early. And then, you know, tracing the histories through the 60s, there's a drastic divergence where during the structuralist cinema, there's a hard abstraction of uh, the indexical image and whatnot. And documentary at the same time is moving towards uh, 
truth towards the observational sense. So both of these things are becoming formally minimalistic in a sense, but they're doing drastically different things. And now more recently, there seems to be kind of a, you know, a new convergence of the two forms as we see a lot of more experimental documentary forms um, emerging that are asking us to question the validity of just any captured image in general or you know, the reflexive modes of uh, the directors uh, you know, forcibly turning the cameras on themselves in the process as a whole. Um, one of the things that I think has been affecting the teaching of experimental film a lot has been the rise of UbuWeb. And a lot of people are now teaching using copies from UbuWeb that in some cases are quite poor quality. And there are, are many things to say about that. But one of the implications is that I think often it becomes very important to allow the students some kind of understanding of the relationship between the poor digital copy that they're seeing and the quote unquote real thing. So between kind of primary presentation and a secondary viewing copy or something like that. Um, that's something that again is true of all cinema, but particularly in experimental film where you can be dealing with work, for example, that is about the film strip in some way. Even for example, the idea of watching Mothlight off of a DVD, there's something about it that requires an extra kind of contextualization about the material specificity of the of the film, and that seems something that is particularly pressing in our moment. Yeah, I agree with Erica's point, and I think I would like to make the point that ethically, it's really important for instructors to pay for artists' work. Obviously, I know educational budgets are always strained, and uh, I have no problem showing a big budget, a DVD of a big budget Hollywood film. But with artist cinema and artist video and new digital work, I think it's really important for educational institutions to pay for rentals, to acquire DVDs from artists or from distributors like Filmmakers Co-op, Canyon Cinema, Canadian Filmmakers Distribution Center, because these artists need to live. <laughs> what would you say is the role of production in the process of teaching experimental film? Preparing for this, the people I, I, was, I was talking to about their experiences in the classroom has mostly been uh, other artists and filmmakers who are teaching filmmakers. I think there's very similar ends in the classroom as far as opening up minds and um, expanding their horizons and conceptions of what cinema is and can be. Especially in production, I would say more than students going to the critical studies room, there's kind of an eye out on the prize when students sign up for a production course in that they have dreams of going to like Hollywood and making the movies that they've grown up loving and seeing so much. And for me, it was this immersion into the process and realizing how big that process is, that having exposure to experimental media in the classroom gave me confidence that I could do something by myself and I could do something with limited resources and, and technologies. It's certainly lower stakes than, you know, getting a, a huge loan out <laughs> to make the money. And, but um, at the same time, there's a lot of liberties that come with that because you don't have to worry about any type of distribution afterwards or, or screening. And you know that in certain locations, finding these experimental film festivals across the country, realizing that there is a dedicated audience um, willing and you know longing to engage in these processes. It was a very fulfilling experience for me. 
one thing. I, I, I completely agree with that. I, I teach in a, in a program that's both studies and production. One of the things that a, um, a filmmaking education should do is teach students what filmmaking really is, what it really means to be a quote-unquote filmmaker, because um, filmmaking labor is so mythologized and so occulted um, in, in, our, in our society. And I think experimental film is part of that. It's, you know, what, what can be done with the medium other than what you have seen. Um, and especially students who are working at a scale that is simply not amenable to making feature-length films with big stars and involved narratives, that experimental film does offer this kind of uh, alternative model. Um, thank you all for doing this. This was a fascinating roundtable, and we really appreciate you taking the time. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you. Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. All right. All right. So really good stuff there. Really helpful teaching ideas for that area. You know, the um, some of the most memorable uh, and visceral moments I remember from um, from undergrad film school was. Mm-hmm. You know, man, the eyeball, I'm telling you. Yeah, it's yeah. It's still there. It's like like that eyeball cut deep into my brain. Right. Shion and the Lou. Or uh, I remember I took an avant-garde class in grad school with J.J. Murphy, and mm-hmm. it was a fantastic class. It opened my eyes to all kinds of films I hadn't seen before or even imagined could be made. But uh, the situation, the screening situation was where he would have us watch these films twice because he thought... You know, it's sort of you have to watch a film like that first to just get your, you know, grounding and what's going on. And then the second time you can kind of really start to dig into what what the experience is like. But as someone who wasn't familiar with those films, like having to watch, say, Wavelength twice, Mm -hmm. right? You sit through it once. And then the second time through, it really is an intriguing challenge. Whereas yeah. you wouldn't think twice about sitting through like a Hitchcock film twice or something like that. Right. But um, it was a very difficult experience. I remember my the most challenging experience. Uh, hopefully this won't be too much information, but the Stan Brackage film. Is there such thing as an experimental film spoiler? <laughs> yeah, right. I meant about me, not about uh, the film. <laughs> but um, the Stan Brackage film, the uh, where it he he filmed the desiccation of his dog his dog died he put it in the backyard the dog disintegrated and so he filmed this so we watched that one and i was really hung over on like as as you know it was (laughs) grad school you know you have some nights where you over imbibe and i've never felt more physically ill watching a film but that's part of that avant-garde experience right really viscerally affecting (laughs) your body so there you go Wow, that's a that's a striking image. So now that is permanently associated with my reading and experience of that film too. So yeah, that's, right. That's another thing, I guess, of those kind of films. The context of watching them is really substantially oh, important, yeah, and so, so much of my memory of watching particular avant-garde films is tied to, especially even in the moment, how you're feeling physically and and, and yeah. mentally. The experience. Oh, I can remember. I can remember the you know the uh, an uncomfortable chair uh-huh. or you know that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and you become hyper aware of a lot of stuff around you with yeah. with those films. And, and it's really, you know, there's that point in the conversation there, Jonathan Wally talking about how these really are about the stuff of cinema. And yeah. that includes those notions of as a spectator sitting in a spot, you know, how the, the you know, the, the room conditions around you, that is part of mm-hmm. the experience of cinema. So it's really interesting to think about how those films can can call up and, and conjure up those kind of memories for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So as we wrap up our episode and as we, in the broader sense, are wrapping up our long uh, semester, Mm -hmm. 
What have you got planned this summer? Are you going to watch anything? You have you have any good screening materials lined up? Yeah, I certainly have uh, a lot of TV catch-up. Part of the problem being so busy during the semester is you miss all the fun shows that, that everyone else is watching, and there's so many shows to catch up on. Um, so the one top of my list is Rectify. I really want to see Rectify, the mm. Sundance Channel series. So I've got that. Um, but then I also want to catch up, just posted on Hulu right now, the uh, Irish series Moon Boy, the second series of Moon Boy is up, and I cannot recommend that enough. It's a comedy with uh, written by Chris O'Dowd and co-starring Chris O'Dowd. It's about a young boy growing up in Ireland, and Chris O'Dowd plays his imaginary friend, and it's very charming and sweet. It's essentially an edgy sitcom without the tiresome cynicism, irony kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's... It's hipster but sweet, and that's a really cool tone, I nice. think. Um, I want to put in also a plug for another series coming to Hulu. Uh, the first two seasons of it are on Hulu already, and the third will be coming. It's a British show called Rev, R-E-V, mm-hmm. period. And a, I just finished watching the current series. It just finished airing in the U.K., and it'll be coming to Hulu over the summer. And it's about a vicar in inner-city uh, London struggling with a small congregation, a failing church, a crisis in his life. Um, It's ostensibly a comedy, but one of those where you think a lot more than you laugh. And the third series especially, I thought, reached some pretty profound heights. Uh, so I highly recommend you try to check out Rev when that oh, pops up. Oh, I will up on check Google. that out. Or for our British listeners, you can already, I guess, head to iPlayer and watch it. Yeah. Uh, so, But us Americans, if you want to watch legally, wait till summer. Wait for wait for it for this summer yep. on Hulu. On Hulu, yeah. You are quite the uh, advocate for Hulu viewing. Well, there's it's some more, terrific stuff on there, and you've been really, really great about making suggestions. It, it may be more that because they've become a, um, a, an important American home for British series, mm-hmm. that uh, it's sort of they haven't been able to match Netflix at the originals game, but in terms of imports, I think they get some really good imports. So right. I, I don't know that I watch anything else on on Hulu, but those those series are really good. Fresh Meat is also another popular British sitcom that's on there now too. For our next episode, we're going to bring you a range of topics. One of those is going to be a brand new Vox Scolari. Yes, and in connection with the conference that we just had here, the Craft of Criticism conference, where a group of scholars came to talk about their areas of expertise. So we asked them some follow-up questions about that, and we'll have their answers in our next episode. Looking forward to it. Acamedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame and the Department of Communication at Denison University. We couldn't put it together without the help from Bill Kirkpatrick and Todd Thompson and production assistant Jillian Meisner. And we'd like to thank this episode's participants, Julie Wilson and the members of the Experimental Film Roundtable. Remember, you can always reach us at info at media.org. There's our website at media.org. And also on Twitter. The Twitter. The Twitters. What is our Twitter handle? At ACA underscore media. That's it. That's it. Or at CRS Becker or at M. Kackman. Right. Or at Bill Kirk P. That's the crew. That's all of us. We will then be back next month. No more taking a month off. Nope. We're ready for summer to, to, to devote all of our energies to Acamedia. Absolutely. Get the white loafers and seersucker out. Summer's coming. Oh, my goodness. I can't wait. 